This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to episode 60. Six zero of the Rex Chapman Show with my super dope homeboy from the Lex Town, Josh Hopkins. What up, Josh? Not much, Rex. How are things in Brooklyn? Everything's good. Are you in Austin these days? It looks like you are. I am. I'm in Austin. Yeah. Uh, yep, starting to cool off here. Feeling really nice. Things are going well in Austin. It's uh, it's a good place to be. I'm, I yeah. got to come up and see you in Brooklyn. I promise you, that's going to happen in the next few months. Okay, you be before better. this it's, year's over, I'm coming. It's nice. It's nice. It's getting fall. Today was like 65, 70. Beautiful. Oof. Just beautiful. Well, I better get there now because I don't like the cold. Uh, 60, episode 60, Josh. I don't know a single number 60 in sports. I can't that's, think of one. That's None. and it's the only one I can think of is Otto Graham. Otto Graham. Graham. That's a good 60, pull. But I, it's a, that's a that's great a tough pull. one. I would no, go like Dr. J six zero Russell yeah. Russell Westbrook. That's 60. how I would do it as yeah, well. Right. 60s tough. But how about us? We've left the 50s in our you know, we're in our uh, podcast lives. We're in our into the 60s. Yeah, you know, you would think that we would be better by at it by now. Yeah. Yeah, and but, um, nope, but no, nope, no, nope. I would uh, say oh. though, it's interesting though, it's interesting that we would regress. <laughs> well, yeah, most people don't yeah, do that with when they true. put in the hours, but somehow that is true. Comment. Somehow we'll get to 10,000 hours and be way worse. <laughs> and also, <laughs> we won't get to 10,000 hours, which it's is true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, so book club uh josh did you have a chance to read anything this week this week i was really busy i had a lot of sleep to catch up on and there's some like tv stuff so no i i I couldn't get to it this week i feel like i let let our listeners down but i I can't add anything in what about you uh no super hungry all week super Uh, hungry and just uh can't Every read when time. you're hungry. No, I just big, big week of eating for me. I just couldn't, you know, every time I think, you know, I should read that. I got hungry. Yeah. yeah. I well, just, I just ate. So no, I didn't read anything. That's nobody's fault, Rex. When you're hungry, you're hungry. That's what I try to say. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you, well, you should. Thanks. That's been book club. Um, Josh, let's talk about our guest this week a little bit uh, a little bit of a departure for us we normally have sports related folks on uh, to some degree but we have a guest who's sort of like from the royal family of film and politics yes. yeah. we have we have ben mankowitz and uh explain a little bit about uh, the mankowitz family if you can I mean, it would be hard to bear the burden of being a Mankiewicz. Uh, let's see, his his father, huge uh, Washington journalist, uh, his brother, 
is uh, uh, Josh. Josh Mankiewicz. Josh, Josh. What he's, I already like him. Dateline and all that Dateline, stuff. Yeah, yeah. and well-respected and loved. Um, his great-grandfather, no. His grandfather. His grandfather wrote uh, a little movie. Most Some people think is pretty good, Citizen Kane. That's Decent. not bad. That's not, not bad. And a lot of other stuff. And his great-uncle wrote, I think he won four Oscars writing and directing. And uh, the Mankiewicz name will get you in the door there in Hollywood. I can tell you that. And uh, he he hasn't needed it, our guest. We have Turner Classic Movie, CBS News, Sunday Morning, and TCM Podcast, The Plot Thickens, and Big Lie. Host, we have Ben Mankiewicz. Ben, welcome, buddy. Oh, the big lie. Right. That's my cousin's John Mankiewicz's audible series uh, on the blacklist. And I forgot that I do narrate part of that. Yes, that is. That is a deep show. I was like, what's the big lie? And I'm like, oh, that's right. That's right. That's, but that's my cousin, John Mankiewicz. Show. Everybody should check it out. It's a narrative audible podcast with John Hamm. It's good. John Slattery. It's good. Apparently, John Hamm and John Slattery are in everything together. Because uh, they're, uh, they're, they're a madman and they're in Fletch together and they did the big lie together, too. So. Man, I'm a fan. It's it's good to meet you. I've uh, you know I followed you on Twitter, and uh, I think I've that of course that's how a lot of us know one another now. It seems, um, but I'm just delighted that you're here. I want to get to the movie Mank and your grandfather that was yeah. nominated for an Academy Award, all that stuff. You grew up in Washington. Uh, yeah. At what age did you become aware of your family history? Did you ever see your grandfather's Oscar in a glass case or anything? Uh, the I don't remember it as a kid, but my dad had it like it was it belonged to my father. My grandfather, Herman Mankiewicz, died in 1953. So he died well before I was born. And my dad was such a big deal in politics in D.C. that that I didn't. So, of course, I was aware of my family's history, but it it meant nothing. The Hollywood part of it. It was just like, yeah, that's what my that's what my dad's father did. And I get and that's what and I talked to Uncle Joe. Uh, Joe Mankiewicz, who won four four Oscars, um, and uh, in two back to back years, writing and directing back to back years, it'll never happen again. Uh, for uh, you know, you know, can you can you just back up a second before you sure. answer this question and yeah. kind of talk about your your grandfather and and his brother and you know about yeah, 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 how yeah, your sure. family is is Hollywood royalty. Yeah. So by the way, so a little bit of a, so that, that, that crazy phrase, Hollywood royalty, which gets thrown around. So I, again, I grew up in DC. I didn't, I came to LA for like a couple of weeks in the summer when I was seven meaningless. And then I came back second visit ever to LA in 1988, like over like Christmas break, I think, or maybe it was the summer. Something like, anyway, I come and I stay with my cousin, John, the guy who who's a, he's a screenwriter and he's got this narrative audible podcast out now. So I stay with him. And my another cousin, Tim, uh, we go to a party, like a Hollywood party. They go, like, oh, we'll go to, I don't even, it doesn't mean anything to me. I'm 21. It doesn't matter. I'm like, okay, great. I'm, I'm a dork. I don't like think parties are cool. I don't know what to say to people. And so I go to the party and I get introduced. And my cousin, although he's a Mankowitz, it's through his mom. So he's named Tim Davis. So he doesn't have the last name. So we get to the party and, and he introduces me to the host and he's like, you know, whatever, you know, uh, uh, Josh, this is the, you know, this is my cousin, Ben Mankowitz. And he goes, from the Mankiewicz, Mankiewicz. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he clicks his heels together and takes a little bow and goes Hollywood royalty. 
Right. And I like, I swear to God, I look behind me like, oh my God, Steven Spielberg's son must be here. Right. Or something like it didn't, <laughs> it didn't dawn on me that this was for me. It was just stupid. Wow. Um, so that was really a That's weird great. thing to get. I was like, I mean, it was way too late for me to, of course, I knew my family had written, I mean, my grandfather written Citizen Kane and my uncle Joe about Eve, Letter of Three Wives, Cleopatra nearly wrecked his career and his reputation. So, you know, we had this fun thing. Wow. And one of my other cousins write about it. He's written a book about it called Competing with Idiots about the relationship between Joe and Herman. Herman was about 10 years older than Joe. And Herman wrote Citizen Kane, considered by, by many the greatest film ever. And Joe directed Cleopatra in 1963, considered by many the worst film ever. So it's like, <laughs> it's not it's so stupid, but that was yeah. the, but Joe was far more successful than Herman. Joe has those four Oscars. So anyway, it took me a while, given that my dad was a big deal. My dad was Bobby Kennedy's press secretary and ran George McGovern's campaign. He was president of NPR. Before that, he beat the Nazis, his first Latin American director of the Peace Corps, uh, you know, and, and a great and wow. the smartest guy in any room ever. So the notion that we should be making somehow like a bigger fuss about some other Mankiewicz was foreign to me. I was like, we, this is the smartest man in the world, my father. Like, there's no, I don't. Um, and then I stumble into this job, which is crazy, where I, you know, talk about the movies that my grandfather, and my uncle and hundreds and hundreds of other artists, thousands of other artists made. So it's a it's pretty cool how it how it worked out. But it, it, it took me a bit to to develop a full appreciation for it. I wasn't hostile to it. It just didn't. It wasn't important to me until until well into my 20s. I was just reading about uh, I believe it was a, a quote from. Uh, no, not your grandfather is Joe, right? My His grandfather, brother, like that's yeah, my great Herman. uncle is Joe. I'm her, her great uncle Joe talking about, you know, uh, coming out to L.A. to visit Joe and being at this party much like you were at and turning and all the stars were there. He just couldn't get over it. You know, Humphrey Bogart and whoever who all was there. And then uh, he promised he had promised to be always uh, in academics and never go down the path of his older brother and get into this Hollywood stuff. And he turned around and there was his professor from Columbia who he had promised and he was mortified to see him there. And first said, what are you doing here? And he said, what are you doing here? And the professor said, well, I'm writing Hollywood for Hollywood now. And so he <laughs> felt much, he, he felt much better about it. <laughs> yeah. This was like his literature professor, the guy who would have the one person that Joe would have been mortified to say like, oh, I'm getting a paycheck in Hollywood. I'm so sorry. And then that guy's like, yeah, I'm working on a screenplay for Columbia. Like, yeah, yeah so I, like, All right, I guess I guess we're OK. Um, what, yeah. Did you feel great. pressure? Did you feel pressure oh, at I any feel time it. to to yeah, uh, I, feel it. I feel it now? I feel it okay. all the time. It's just sort of like, uh, you you know, I, I don't expect anybody to, you know, but uh, it's give me weird, hunt, but, but it's, it's definitely that, there. Yeah, it's weird, though, that you say that. I, I mean, you were you you didn't really have a full appreciation for how uh how your how big your family how massive the appeal was uh, until you were you know maybe 20 21 uh but later did you feel yeah, okay did you yeah. feel pressure before that uh yeah i felt pressure kind of just from being my father's son i mean i'm right. i'm telling you they're like the everyone who worked with my father everybody at npr all those you know, great NPR correspondents, Cookie Roberts, and Nina Totenberg. I mean, there's a good chance. I won't put words in their mouth, but they're 
they would say the smartest person they knew was my father. And everybody called my father for help and in anything, whether it was help writing something or whether it was help navigating a difficult situation or how to turn, you know, bad press into good press. I mean, whatever the problem was. And so I just, you know, it took me a long time to think, you know what, I'm not going to be as smart, as clever as him. And that's that's okay. You can still have a like rich life. And he never put an ounce of pressure on me ever. He wanted, I wanted to, I love sports. He wanted me to be, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. He was like, let's go. Let's, let's do that. He didn't, he was great, but he couldn't help it. It's just, it's the nature of, and my brother is 12 years older, Dateline correspondent, Josh Mankiewicz is so good. And he's so funny and so charming and everybody loves him. So, you know, and he's the only other me and we're only, we're two siblings. And and so he's just growing up in like his shadow. You just think, you know, you, you can't, you can't beat him. And then, and, you know, and then you just fight you, whatever you find your own way. Again, I don't I don't think it's worthy of sympathy, but it is totally true that you just feel this pressure. And almost every child of a successful Mankiewicz has definitely <laughs> felt it. Joe, Joe Mankiewicz, because Joe was not a good father. My father was a great father. Joe Mankiewicz was not a good father. His kids, Tom and Chris, hard, 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 hard. And his daughter, Alexandra, wow. hard, hard to be his son Wow, and daughter. Yeah. Man, so there was there he, your brother Josh is twelve years older. You said twelve years old. He looks much older, but he's just twelve. Years old. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so interesting. The dynamics of uh, your grandfathers. Yeah, they were ten years apart. They were. They were. They, they were. They your were like yeah, they were great uncles. Close, close to the same. And right and now. Joe, like me, grew up idolizing his big brother. That's why he came out to L.A. because he yeah. Herman, Herman came out first. Was was writing title cards for for silent movies. Uh, and then eventually uh, sound, he was a highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood for a while. I mean, that, that, that didn't make you the richest got close to the richest guy in Hollywood, but they made a good what, living. They had nice house. What made him go out there? What made him do that? Had he, did he know somebody out there? Did he, well, I mean, you could come out like you could really find your own way. I don't know what he got offered a job in New York to come out and write titles. Cause he was, he was a, a theater critic uh, for okay. the New Yorker. He'd been a, he'd been a, a correspondent for the Chicago Tribune in Berlin covering foreign affairs, but he covered for a long time. He covered theater. He was a theater critic, which he thought was a noble profession, theater critic, noble profession, writing movies, sell out. Right. So there was, <laughs> and, and it was all this. He, he is self-loathing defined Herman, right. defined it. And could have defined Joe. Joe just figured out how to get past it. So, but then it gets there and the checks are ridiculous. Right. He was like, this crazy. They didn't have money like this. You know, I mean, his father, his father, Franz, very disapproving man, my great grandfather. And he, you know, he, he, he was a, he was a teacher, a, a professor. Uh, but I mean, like at CCNY, like they, they, but he, that was what you did. You, 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 you know, there's that he's one of those parents who it's in, there've been a lot of books written about the, them lately, but I mean, he was, a, he said, he would say to Herman, like, you'd come home with a 97 on a test and he would be like, where's the other three points? Not 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 well done. So 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 and Herman never got comfortable with it. He wrote these great things and he he always thought this is, you know, popcorn for the masses. This isn't this isn't substantive. You know, he tried. He'd written a play. It didn't do well. You know, this was right. Uh, being a writer, uh, uh, if you wrote a the great American novel, if you were a playwright, but even again, if you were a theater critic, that was worthy. This was nonsense. And he beat wow. himself up and, and drank himself and got himself fired all the time. And if you saw Mank, that was a pretty accurate portrayal of what kind of guy he was a fun drunk 
Everybody liked him. He wasn't a mean drunk, except to people who maybe deserved to be mean to, you know, but, <laughs> but he was, um, but he hated himself. He hated what he, yeah. you know, and he was so, which is tragic because you want to go back in time and say like, no, man, these are people love these movies. This, this mattered. It, it, it does matter what you're doing. This is an art that counts, but Joe was comfortable with it. And then, so Joe, I idolize my brother. I still do, but Joe, uh, you know, came out idolizing Herman and then Herman kind of disintegrated you know, and kept getting fired and needed yeah. money. He was always lending money too. But Joe then came to resent Herman because Joe had all this great success, but everybody was still like, Herman's the funniest guy, right? Herman's the genius. Even if he's kind of a failed genius, he's the genius. Wow. And Joe's like, no, I got four Oscars. <laughs> I'm the genius. I think you figured it out, man. You know, yeah. so they, uh, uh, but my brother and I do not, we do not have that. We're, we're very close. So that's fortunate. I paraphrase. He taught, he taught me how to. He taught me how to be on TV. He taught me, you know, everything important. I basically mostly learned from my brother. I paraphrase, but isn't there a, a quote from Herman? I believe he was writing back to Joe and saying, "You got to get out here. I'm. There's millions to be made, and everyone I'm competing with is an idiot." That's, you is basically, that <laughs> you basically got. You got to remember the last line. So it was to Ben Hecht, not to Joe, but it could have been to Joe. Um, uh, he cabled the great writer, Ben Hecht, and he says, uh, basically, uh, get out here as soon as you can. Uh, uh, there's millions to be made. Everyone else is an idiot. Don't let this get around. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and sure enough, Ben Hecht came out and, you know, made millions. Steph Curry's record-breaking three-pointer, Jason Tatum's buzzer-beating alley-oop, John Morant's poster dunk. NBA Top Shot is where the greatest moments from NBA history are turned into officially licensed digital collectibles. NBA Top Shot has evolved trading cards by making it easier to buy, sell, and collect by removing the hassle of grading, shoe boxes, and shipping fees. You can buy or sell moments in a few clicks and access them at any time on your phone or computer. Your collection is always at your fingertips. Start collecting Top Shot moments in any way you want. Collect rookie moments from future stars like Evan Mobley and Kay Cunningham. Collect throwback moments from former NBA stars like Shaq and Allen Iverson. Or collect moments from your favorite team to gain access to exclusive perks. Grab your starter pack today and Top Shot will give you $20 back to start your collection and pick up some of your favorite moments in the marketplace. Go to about.com nbatopshot.com slash bballnews and get in the game today. Uh, you started, you know, you said you'd learned everything from, from your brother. I, I love that. Uh, you started your career, though, as a TV reporter uh, in Charleston, yeah. South Carolina, and then Miami. Did it come naturally to you? Did you have to work at it? Because um, it it's tough. Like, it, it's very different. I can be interviewed all day long. I've done that my whole life doing the interviewing and being in front of a camera and all that stuff is very different. It is. It's different. It's, I don't know whether it's uh, hard, but it's a skill, right? It's just a, right. It's like, I mean, reading a teleprompter is a skill I mean, at Turner classic <laughs> movies. We've brought in some really big, enormously talented actors at various times to where they have to like read something on the prompter and they cannot do it. I mean, they sound like they've never right ever, but then they'll win, win an Oscar. I mean, they can be in front of a camera, but they <laughs> cannot read. So it's like a dumb right. skill. But that said, mostly you just get used to it. And I I was very shy. I still am instinctively shy. Um, so uh, I get past it. But the 
I think without my brother, I never would have done it. I mean, I didn't really know what to do, but here was this, he was, he'd worked in TV as a producer. He interned at ABC in the summer. And then, you know, he gets a job as a producer and then works his way on the air. He of course started in Washington, DC, like who starts in Washington, DC. Mm-hmm. Right. But <laughs> right. so eventually I sort of decided, and it, first, my first thought was I'd do sports, you know, I mean that, you know, I, uh, I was the guy who loves, I was the kid who loved sports. So did my dad, um, not as my brother, less so. So, uh, that's, and then I got to be 26 and I went to journalism school and then I was like, I guess I should do this, but it was terrifying. It was, and I was bad, but then you, you know, you do it every day. I mean, it's like a baseball season. You know, you, one of the great things about being a TV reporter is like, however lousy, however awful your, your live shot is, however bad your piece is, you got another one on the next day, right? You, you can, you can, yeah, so the beauty is you come in clean and fresh every day with a chance. And I started to get better and get a little more comfortable, but it is foreign. It is foreign. Yeah. Every time those camera comes on, every time they turn on lights, why well, I love podcasts and, 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 and doing interviews, uh, just audio because, you know, I mean, you can wear a hat, you don't care. There's no, as soon as you put makeup right. on and they turn the lights and they adjust and you got to yeah. get, yeah, it just change, <laughs> it changes the dynamic. It changes things. No question. So um, in the early 90s, one of the biggest stars in the world was uh, singer George Michael. I was playing in uh, Washington for the Washington Bullets at the time. And the big star there locally was George Michael uh, of the George Michael Sports Machine. And you worked for George? Well, not only did I work for George, but I saw you play at the Capitol Center. I don't know. It must have been, you know. Cause that's when, so when were you, you remember offhand when you were with the bullets? I was there. I was there like 92 to 90, 91 to 90, something like that. Cause I, I worked at, so for George, I was in, that would have been like 87, 88. And then the next year I worked for Glenn Brenner, another broadcaster in DC. But then I got out of college and I worked for two years at the ABC affiliate with Frank Herzog was the anchor there. And I was, then I got paid. I was a producer. And that's wow. when I saw you play. Cause I was, I know I was there working. You but and those like teams, 300 other people. Oh man. So that's the thing I learned about groupies there because I'd, I'd go out. And Did we have some, them? Some bullets game. No, that's the crazy thing. And the team would be, you know, 23 and 59 or 21 and 61. And they were so uh, forgive me, Rex. I mean, we were, they, were not, we were. they weren't interesting either. They weren't a fun <laughs> losing team. It was just kind of sad. And I loved the Bulls, right? Loved, loved, loved all my, the June 1978 beating the Sonics to win the NBA title. One of the happiest days of my life, 11 years old. It was just joy. Right. And so, and I get there and I'd be like, it's amazing because they're finished the game. They're terrible. They just lost to the Pacers 119 to 91, right? (laughs) Game was over halfway through the second quarter. And, and there are, and there are these girls lined up after the game. They're there to meet Liddell Eccles. Like, how's that possible? Right. You know, but they are. That's it. You know, uh, that's great. It's yeah. so true. It's so good, too. Oh, my gosh. When, when did you, you know, you probably could have gone different directions, politics, you know, sports, TV. What was it uh, that, you know, sort of gravitated you toward what you ended up doing and, you know, what you're doing now? A lot of decisions that worked out in my life were, were this sounds like a joke, but I mean, it were, were, they were so dumb and they were motivated by the wrong thing. I mean, then you make the best of it. Right. Right. I mean, I, I didn't go to college at NYU. I went to Tufts, 
because Tufts was, I don't know, four spots better in a ranking. And I was embarrassed by the schools I didn't get into. So I thought, oh, I better go to Tufts. But really, I was scared of New York. I could have gone. If I got into Columbia, I would have gone. I got rejected. So I but NYU, like, you know, uh, in the village and no campus. And I was like, oh, I can't do it. I'm terrified. So I made a bad decision. Right. But but I there was like a moment where I thought and maybe this is for being a Mankiewicz and maybe thinking that spending my life watching the Pacers beat the crap out of the bullets or or caring that making, you know, do I want to spend my life saying that the the Giants beat the Padres five to four when it really doesn't matter if the Padres beat the Giants five to four, that doesn't have anything to do with the world. And it was almost that period of my life lasted about four weeks. But in that period of time, I was like, I can't, I can't do sports. It's not serious enough. It's not important enough. It doesn't, you know, there's, there's problems in the world. And my dad made a difference and, and my brother's a journalist and he's making a difference. And I'm, what am I going to do? I'm just going to sit around here and I'm going to, I'm going to go to college basketball. My goal was to what go to, you know, again, to, to, you know, be at an NCAA tournament and cover it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, now I would say, yeah, great. Do that. That's fine. Covering sports is great. It's noble. It's fine. Right. But I made the decision not to. So I went into news and sort of willed myself to care about it and willed myself to try and care about politics as much as my dad that worked like that. I, that I tricked myself into, caring and knowing and understanding politics. So that's, Gosh. that was, the, that was what, that was the good thing that came out of that decision. That's so amazing. I, I mean, I'm sitting here cause I, I'm trying to picture myself. I'm almost the exact opposite. I was just only, <laughs> it was only basketball for a long, I mean, till my thirties and maybe even till just a few years ago when I thought, Oh no, there are other things out here that, I but you should, were, you know, but you were, you were, but you were great at it. I mean, it was like, it was clear. I mean, it wasn't just that you could, you knew you could maybe be a professional at it, which of course turned out you could, but, but, you know, if I would have been that, I didn't feel like I was that good at anything. So it was, I wanted to find something I was good at. I, I mean, even TV, I was like, I won't be as good as my brother. You know, you grew up in DC though. What was it that just freaked you out about New York? Oh, New York was, you know, DC, first of all, wherever you grow up, you can handle Right. You think that's you've got a, a fix on it. But New York just intimidated me. I mean, I was scared. Obviously, I mean, I, I, I wish I'd gone to NYU only because it would have been bolder because I would have grabbed. I'm sure I don't know. I wouldn't have entered the film school. I would have ended up there. I'm pretty confident. Mm. Um, I mean, I, you know, I had a great girlfriend at Tufts. I would be foolish to 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 change it. And I met some good guys, but I forget I, I went there like I I just right. it doesn't. It's not like when they call to ask for money and I'm like, I don't want to be rude, but it's, there's no chance. I just, it's not part of anything that I care about, about myself. Wow. I don't, nothing definitive except the, the wonderful girlfriend. Wow. Uh, other than that, I don't. So I just wish I challenged myself. That's all. And, and not been afraid. You know, you don't look, you never look back. Yeah, on things. I like, oh, I'm so glad I was afraid. Yeah. Right. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. That was cool you, when I was, when I was scared. Yeah. It can work know, out for you though. No, everything, out everything, for you. everything, everything worked out. Everything worked yeah. out. Uh, you you hosted uh, a lot of shows on the Young Turks Network. Uh, how, I that Jenk, and I, Jenk and I created the Young Turks. T- well, I mean, he was yeah. he a little head start because he'd done it at local access in D.C. But how did that we became, materialize? We became friends in Miami. We hired him. I, I was hosting the show in Miami. That was luck, too. Um, <laughs> and uh, 
But I. What's it meant for your career, though? I mean, it's it's pretty. Well, first of all, well, first the show in Miami changed my career, but but, and that's where I met Jenk. So in in many ways, it changed my life. But we hired him to be on the air. He's the Jenk's the main host of the of Young Turks, and we brought him in. He wanted to be on the air. He was so bad. Oh my god, he's the worst. So (laughs) bad, so bad. But he was clever and he was bold and different. And we agreed on. He was a Republican then, but we agreed on everything. And so we'd have the only argument we'd have. I'd be like, I don't think you're a Republican. I just don't. You can say you're a Republican, but I don't. How? I go, you, you, I know you're embarrassed by Strom Thurmond. You're embarrassed by Jesse Helms. Like you think these guys are awful. And he's like, yeah, so what? And he's like, and then in the 2000 election, it was like this Bush guy. He's too dumb to vote for. I can't do it. <laughs> um, he's like, he's dumb. He can't be dumb and be president. You can't. And that sort of began this sort of genesis that, that, that he's had. But, um, wow. and then so we, but we connected and became really, really, really close. And then the station shut down. We both moved to LA. I moved like three months ahead of him. And like, we went to get drinks one night and he's like, yeah, I'm thinking of starting that public access show I had and doing it as like a radio show, serious satellite radio we mailed them the tapes like we would do a show and put it in the mail to Sirius Satellite Radio. And wow. he was like, he's like, I, I do want to. Uh, and I was like, he's like, I don't know. I kind of wish I had a partner. I was like, well, I wish I had something to do like that. And then we're like, right, so we're obviously we're just going to do this together. Right. And he was like, yeah, OK, great. That, that's it. And then, yeah, it was good. That's so great. Um, you're the lead anchor for uh, Turner Classic Movies. Um, yeah. How'd that come about? And how are you so good at it? Well, thanks. Very nice of you to say. I mean, I, it, you know, uh, you know, the, the 10,000 hours is part of it. I mean, I was on I'd been on television nine years when I got the job. So, I, you know, I didn't I was fairly comfortable. But I look people used to say in the first three or four years I'm there, they're like, oh, you're so much better than when you started. And I was like, you know, it's my worst compliment ever. <laughs> you know, I've been on TV for 10 years at that point. And I've been working for 15 years. And. Uh, what you mean is that you got used to me, right? Like, you know, TCM fans and they're the, they're, they're the best. And I, I don't say that because it's the thing you're supposed to say They're, You know, it's a, it's the only channel that has fans who consider the channel a defining part of their lives. There's nobody in, you've not, no, there's no normal person in the world, no functioning person in the world who goes, Oh, I don't know, man. I love ABC. Right. Oh, you know, I mean, you, you like, you know, nobody says, Oh, I love Showtime. Right. You like shows on Showtime. Yeah. Right? But nobody else, you know, what do you like to do? I just like to go home and watch stars. Right. It's not, that's not a real thing. So, but TCM like defines people. The, I mean, obviously yeah. it's, it's these moves. So anyway, so I got, uh, you know, I mean, I was just, uh, it's just unbelievably fortunate. I auditioned for every show on the planet. They had decided to hire a second host. I, I failed at like a, 150, 160 auditions in LA after that show in Miami shut down, moved to LA. I got nothing, nothing. And then, and then they had an audition at TCM and it was more than a, where you just go and try to impress in an empty room. They actually, they thought at that point, this new host they hired for the weekends after Robert Osborne is the main host that, that it would be a conversation. So they had like 10 people come in and they had to screen a couple of movies, uh, uh, Kurosawa's Seven Samurai and the American remake, The Magnificent Seven by John Sturgis. So they, and and then and then just discuss them. And so I just discussed them. Right. And I watched them and discussed them. And and you got a chance to be yourself and be a little clever and funny. And they kept bringing wow. me back. They were like, OK, now you play the expert. Now you play the host. And I was in every session. 
And I was like, oh, these, they, I'm doing, this is good. Like this is, <laughs> and it was like a three hour audition. So there was time to get past the opening jitters. Isn't and that I, fun? I it, yeah. It, it, isn't that fun when it, you start feeling, you know, that energy coming back at you no, was, when you bombed it, so it, much. And it was thrilling. Mind. It was really, it was yeah. thrilling. I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was one of the best feelings I've ever had. And then the time they called me back, like two months later, a month later, they'd given up on that. And it was just come here, read a teleprompter. We can't do that. It's too hard to book. We're just going to do this. But I knew how to read a teleprompter. I'd been a local anchor, you know, and whatever. I got to do that. And uh, and then the guy, I did the audition. I read a script for the, the Cary Grant movie, The Bishop's Wife, David Niven, Loretta Young. And I finished the, you know, two minute intro, minute and a half. I didn't change a word. I was terrified and finished. And the guy goes, well, this isn't your first barbecue. And I was like, well, yeah, I know how to read aloud. Um, you know, and, uh, and and then and then like weird stuff. I like telling the story because it's so stupid. So I go home and and, and uh, I do the audition. My girlfriend at the time says, you know, how to go. And I go, I think it went pretty well. I mean, I just came in. I read. They seemed to like it. The guy made some weird comment about barbecue and I uh, went home, you know, and <laughs> and then I said, I tell you what, let's turn on TCM. And if a Mankiewicz had anything to do with what is on right now, and obviously that's unlikely. Um, then I'll definitely get the job. And I'm not going to be stupid and superstitious and say that I'm not going to get it if it's not a Mankiewicz. And I still might get it. But if it is, I'm definitely going to get it. And she's like, all right, I go, let's see. Let's see. Turn it on. And the movie is The Barefoot Contessa with Humphrey Bogart, Ava Gardner, written and directed by Joe Mankiewicz. And I was oh, like, come on. Right, right. I don't know. And I was like, you know, this is like, there's no TV guide. The only way you find out what's on, you have to turn it on. Turn it in on. 2003, it was the spring or summer, early summer, 2003. And it was barefoot. And I was like, wow, I wish I believed that this meant anything because this is <laughs> yeah. a, a great moment. And then I ended up, like, whatever, a couple months later, I got the job. So, oh, it's great. And that was is, nine, is, 19, 19 years ago. Is film your favorite art form? Yeah, um, I, Jenk, uh, we were talking about Jenk. Jenk, so we do a podcast together, like an old school, it's called Old School. So the idea of what the Young Turks was going to be before sort of politics totally took it over. It was, you know, we we're, were going to talk about nonsense for half the show and politics for half the show. But then the Iraq war happened and we had to do away with the nonsense hour. So we do this podcast once a week. It's like a salute to the Young Turks as we imagined it would have been in 2003. And this is like a, a year ago. And he said to me, okay, here's the question. And it was somebody else on too. He goes, well, you have to give up movies or music for the rest of your life. Which one do you keep? Right. And I did that, made that sound. I went, oof, <laughs> right. And, and, and he says, you know, it's gotta be movies. And I was like, yeah, definitely. And then I was like, I, I think I might have to keep music. And I don't even know that much about music and I don't play, but man, when you need music or you, it's just, it's too, the thought that there wouldn't, that I couldn't play another Bruce Springsteen song was like too painful to face. So if the question is, what's my favorite art form? I mean, I watch musicians and I, I don't even know what they're doing, but I'm so blown away. I mean, I think the dumbest things I, I watch it, I see live music and I'm like, how does the drummer know what to do? <laughs> like he gets it right every time. It's every so time. amazing, you know, every time. <laughs> And then so so yeah, I mean, with it's a tough break. Music and and movies are in a they're in a pretty fierce battle. Well, uh, we're on a pod here. Um, you talked about uh, your pod earlier. Talk a little bit about uh, the plot thickens. Um, it's received rave reviews. Complicated storytelling at its finest. Uh, I'd love to know a little bit 
more about yeah, your, well, thanks, from your perspective. Yeah. So I wanted to do a podcast TCM for a long time, but you know, I had like an idea that I would do an interview show because there aren't, there aren't enough of those. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We need, we need more. Um, and, but I, you know, I like, I love interviewing people like you do. It's fun. Right. I mean, I'm, I, I got good at it. It took a while. Um, but, and then, so, and then, and I was friends with, got friend friendly with Peter Bogdanovich, the director through wow. the job. And I, and I, and Peter was such a wonderful man and uh, complicated, honest about his own foibles and mistakes and very human. And I, uh, and I was like, you know, he had interviewed all these great directors, wrote a book called who the devil made it with all the, you know, 20 of the finest directors ever Orson Welles, who was close friends with, and, you know, John Ford, Howard Hawks, the book is called who the devil made it. It's a quote from Howard Hawks. When you watch a film, you ought to know who the devil made it. Hawks said, right. That the director's stamp ought to be on it. Right. So I thought, well, I'll talk to Peter and he'll talk about different directors and it'll be a good TCM podcast. And then pretty quickly, Angela Corona, heads our podcast was like, yeah, I think the podcast should be about Peter. And then she presented why. And I was like, Oh, you're smarter than I am. Yeah. That's better. Than <laughs> um, and, uh, and so that became season one of the plot thickens. It was Peter Bogdanovich talking about his life, which is, you know, so filled with, and, you know, he was, he was the hottest director was compared to Orson Welles with his first second movie uh, last picture show. And, uh, it, he was dazzling and then it all came crashing down and some of it was his fault arrogance. And then some of it was unfathomable tragedy. Um, and then he came back and then he screwed up again, you know, by suing a studio over something that didn't over Bruce Springsteen over whether the studio replaced Bruce Springsteen's music with Bob Seger. Cause a new studio head came in and it was cheaper. Nothing wrong with Bob Seger, but Peter's vision yeah. was, was Bruce, Bruce Springsteen. And uh, that was for mask. And, and then Peter screwed up again. And then fell apart again. And then, but yet he is, was this living link to classic Hollywood. So it was a really compelling story. And then we did two more seasons, uh, uh, the devil's candy season two and about the making of bonfire with the band. He's Lucille ball, which was amazing for season three. We had all this great tape that we, uh, that we got to tell Lucy's story and stuff. People really did not know about her. And then, I mean, all before the movie comes wow. out in the doc. So we were, it was weird that Lucy had an unreal year in 2021. Um, <laughs> And then this year, later this month, October 25th, uh, season four, Pam Greer. And oh, Pam, fantastic. Um, I love Pam her. Greer, somebody. And this, so we get to tell uh, the story of, of Hollywood in the middle of the new Hollywood in the, in, you know, in the, in the, in the early 70s, mid 70s. And we get to tell the story of black exploitation. And we wow. get to tell Pam's story, which independent of all that she represents, she's the you know, first female action hero in the history of the movies. And she, uh, uh, and that white or black. Um, and we also get, to, and then she became the biggest black exploitation star. You know, right now, I think people think, you know, they think Shaft and they'll think Richard Roundtree, mm -hmm. but the biggest black exploitation star was Pam and all the yeah. complicated things that that term means, what it mean, right. means different things to different people. So we get to examine that and Pam and Pam is fun and crazy and wonderful. And just you is impossible not to root for. So that's a, I think seven episodes and, and they're good. I tried. I put my voice to uh, uh, two of them today. So uh, to episodes five and six. So we're still, you know, as everything we're crashing it on the air. But uh, like like most people, she's yeah. one of my early first crushes, you know, well, she uh, is our and Sam she, Pam Greer. And she oh, follows yeah. me on Twitter, which is one of my big uh, thrills. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, That's really um, cool. 
Uh, um, yeah, she, and she's the best. It's hard. I mean, you'd have a you, you hang out with her now. You'd have a, you'd still have a crush on her at, at 73. She's still unbelievably. I know I would. Yeah. Ben, what is it? We just talked about, um, you know, if you had to do away with one forever film or or uh, music. What is it about pods now? You know, Josh, Josh listens to his pods all the time. My son, it's like, if he goes for a run, instead of listening to music, he listens to pods. What, why, what is it well, about the, the pods that uh, are so fascinating to people? Well, I think we managed to find a, a, a manner of storytelling that we hadn't tapped into. So we found something different, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, obviously we were in the middle of, I don't even know whether you can call it a, a golden age anymore of television. This is how television is going to be right. for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And, you know, and the writing is so, it, it, there's so much depth to the writing. It's so complicated. It's so nuanced, you know, I mean, as great as the shows that you and I grew up with, right. um, obviously TV is better now, right? I mean, the acting is better. The writing yeah. is better. Everything is better. It's, it's more real. It's raw, but podcast this sort of narrative storytelling to say nothing of all the interesting interviews i mean you know i mean like thank goodness for podcasts like you know i, I get to right. talk to rex chapman like it's, you know, <laughs> but it's i'm not i'm not trying to just i mean that's super cool yeah. to me like no, i was you know you. and and your your story is a pretty compelling story oh. right oh. i mean i love when people try to like make fun of your past right they think gotcha <laughs> i'm like yeah, hey man, he knows. Yeah. Uh, he knows. He's not, he's not, I was there. Right. I did it. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you realize this is sort of a this like the his life is a celebration of what you can get past. Like that's the whole that's part of the freaking charm, idiots. Yeah, like that's yeah, part of what's yeah. great about it and yeah. inspiring. So well, so you know, you get exposed to all these great stories and all this new manner of storytelling and not being able to see something and to use the 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 sense to use your hearing to imagine it. Right. I mean, it's like this little com. It's a it is a com. I mean, it, first of all, it's like old time radio. I don't want to pretend like. Right. That. <laughs> but for us, people who've grown up in this era of thinking, well, I can listen to something or I can read something or I can see here. It is this it, it is it is taking reading and television and sort of mashing them together in an yeah. interesting way. And I, I I think that that has grabbed us. I hope it continues to. I think it yeah. will. I mean, I can't imagine they're going to be this many forever. But as long as people are willing to do it for very, for very little money, you know, um, you know, Joe Rogan gets all the money. Right. Um, right. The uh, then then I think it'll it'll work. I mean, I, I, I badly want it to go on. I want to do I want to do more, you know, and I, I still yeah. want to have that. I still want that interview show. I still but I but I love doing the plastic and said I love that people are are into it. Oh, and la and also, you know, they can it is narrow casting. Right. I mean, that's the we're already at that stage with television. Right. I mean, there is no broadcasting. I mean, you know, the uh, there was that show. Jonathan Silverman did the show called The Single Guy It's like yeah. this is an example. It was on like Thursday nights on NBC for two seasons, maybe three. Ernest Borgdine was in the show. He played like the doorman, I think. But <laughs> it was on like after the Cosby show or I don't remember the era. It was on after Cheers. I don't know when it was on in that NBC lineup, either at 830 or 930. It was a, at the bottom of the hour show and it got canceled after two years because it only had 20 million viewers, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and, you know, or 18 million, whatever it was. Right. Like it would be the number one show in the country. It would be the biggest hit in the world right now if it had that many. <laughs> but now, so now you, you don't have, you find a million people, right? Good. You're set, right? Yeah. And then we, and then you, you know, we figured out ways to, to try to monetize that to those people. 
So you can find what you love. So, you know, when you kids or when Josh goes out and finds the goes for run, he's finding the thing that really suits him like music. So I think that that is that is that's that's really appealing that you don't your choices aren't to listen to. You don't have to listen to news. Right. You you, yeah. you listen to whatever you're a movie fan. You'll find it with the with the, the plot thickens. Right. You, right. There's just a, a real opportunity to find something that that gets you going that you're passionate about. I love the, the, and, the, and by the way, just real quick, it turns out that what everyone is passionate about is people murdering other people. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by branded bills, the best place online for premium headwear and apparel. Branded bills has hundreds of designs available, including our popular state collection, where you can show your pride with hats, shirts, hoodies, and more for all 50 states. Are you a company looking to brand your business? Branded Bills also offers custom apparel options that can meet your brand standards with fast turnaround and shipping. To shop or learn more, visit brandedbills.com today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, well, it's a, the parallels where your great grandfather um, looked down on this art form of, you know, film and didn't want. And then even uh, your grandfather didn't really think he was doing something uh, benefiting society. He, 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 Yeah, no, it is my grandfather. That's who that's who didn't. Yeah. Like my, gra- my great grandfather, he like any of it. Right? He, yeah, I didn't, you know, but my grandfather, but yeah, Herman. Yeah, Mank. He's Mank. And, yeah. and then it turns out, you know, he helped create this incredible art form and was making such beautiful art. And you come around and you're like, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't live up to this name. And in this new medium, what people make fun of, by the way, like, oh yeah, that's what we need. Another podcast, but you're doing it in such a way, this long form that it's definitely art. 
And yes. Well, yeah, no, it is. It is. I, I couldn't. I mean, also, there's something else that's great about it. It's a collaborative part of it, right? I mean, that's one of the, you know, which is the forgotten part that we don't even do enough justice to a TCN that makes movies great, right? That it's uh, this amazing collaborative art. And you, yeah. Um, but this po- these podcasts are, I mean, I, yeah, I, I go over the scripts and I write now a little bit and that's good. And I host it and I do the main interviews. Obviously, I did these, you know, three days of interviews with Pam and five days of interviews with Peter. And that's the form of the backbone. But I mean, sometimes you... you I'll, I'll, I'll put my voice to the podcast and I'll be, I'll say to Angela, yeah, I don't think this transition doesn't sound right. Sounds a little abrupt. Sounds a little hacky and awkward. And she's like, yeah, it does. But wait, wait till we wait till the, the sound mixer, wait till our editor, right. Mike, Mike Volgaris gets a hold of it. And then sure enough, you're like, Oh my God, it's beautiful. I'm weeping <laughs> right, right at this thing he created. Yeah. So the, and, and that's true of the CBS Sunday morning pieces that I do, which is a great thing. And I, I was told when I came in, it's an editor driven show. And, you know, you work with a producer and you craft the screen, the script, and you think you got a good story about someone and then it airs and you get your breath taken away because of what the yeah. editor did, you know? Right. So right. Uh, I love being part of that. Uh, ben, a couple of years ago, November, 2020, uh, Mank was released. And uh, telling the story of your grandfather, co-writing uh, Citizen Kane. How do you think that movie stacked up with the reality? Well, reality. first of all, um, you're talking to a Mankiewicz, so I'm going to yeah. correct you on the co-writing part. Okay. <laughs> um, he wrote Citizen Kane. Um, oh, okay. Orson, or, uh, Orson Welles <laughs> contributed a little. I mean, but, so that's one of the things. I'm blaming that, I, that on JT, the, our um, producer. I'm one of the on things that, that uh, no, but that's one of the things that it drives me crazy because Herman wrote that screenplay. I mean, it's beaten into my head by my father. Um, and that's the bank I think makes pretty clear. Uh, Orson Welles truncated it some and, and, but the debate over the, who wrote the screenplay obfuscates what should be obvious, which is that it's Orson Welles's movie. He directed it. He changed the way directing. It changed what we, what directors could imagine they could do with a film. Uh, he produced it by sheer force of will against incredible headwinds and, and producing it in every sense of it. He made it happen and he delivered this unbelievable performance. So, yeah, I got it. He didn't write it, but it's his movie. And let's not let's not have an argument over who wrote it turn into, you know, he wanted credit for everything. And and he had an ego and he had a contract that called for that. So I, I get it. But it's his movie and it's probably the greatest movie ever. But my grandfather wrote. It. So how did it stack up? I think pretty well. I don't know. I never knew my grandfather, but I started crying like within 40 seconds of that movie because one, I wanted my dad to be alive to have seen it mm. because that was, it was exactly how my father described his father. Like, I don't, not all the events happened. There was no California governor's race that, that defined Herman's break with studio heads that that was made up, but politics mattered a lot. So it was a metaphor for that politics mattered to, but who he was, the sort of the, that guy that Gary Oldman inhabited, that was just how my father, the manner in which he was drunk, the manner in which he was funny, the manner in which he was thoughtful and smart and thought about really big things, the manner that he hated himself for all those things, not caring about money, gambling, that he gave me. <laughs> he was a, he was a huge gambler and he didn't care, he didn't care if he had money. I mean, if he lost $28,000 in 1937, he'd be like, well, all right, I guess I better get a job. 
you know, it didn't, you know, he also lent money. I mean, he borrowed money from Joe and then he'd literally borrow money from Joe and then he'd lend it to friends. <laughs> I think that, that might've made Joe a little irritated. Yeah. 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 Skirting, skirting. Yeah, that's right. He was, that was constant, <laughs> but he used to the famous story about my grandfather's that if, if, if he was like some guy was down on his luck and really needed a thousand dollars or if he, some guy who, you know, had to, you know, a family and he'd lost a thousand dollars at the track or something like that, or, 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 or a medical condition, something that, that caused, uh, Herman would be like, he'd lend him the money and he'd be like, and here's a thousand and here's a thousand more because the thousand is just going to get you even. You got to have a thousand. You got to have another thousand to sort of wow. get yourself together. And then he'd forget who owed him because he didn't care. <laughs> and that's very appealing. All that stuff makes him yeah. sound sort of heroic. And I think if he hadn't been drunk all the time, he would have been heroic. Some say he was the funniest man in the world. Did you ever right. get yeah. to uh, see, see that? No, no, he died at 53. So I never, he died at 56 in 1953. Oh my uh, gosh. Sports fans will appreciate this line. It's from my uncle Don, who's John Mankiewicz's father, my father's brother. Don was a writer, Oscar nominated himself for the Susan Hayward film, I Want to Live, but uh, wrote a couple, really uh, wrote the, the trial episode of Star Trek. Wrote a lot of pilots, like wrote the pilot for Ironside. I think Marcus Welby too. Um, but Don, uh, so- on March 5th, 1953, Herman Mankiewicz dies um, at 56, basically drank himself to death. I mean, I think it was kidney failure ultimately, mm-hmm. but it was all a big, big picture. It was drinking. And uh, so he dies. And uh, and then later that day, the family learns that Joseph Stalin died. Um, and uh, and then Herman says, I mean, Joe, uh, excuse me, Don says to my father, Frank, his younger brother, he goes, well, so Joseph Stalin died today too. So at least we split the double header. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a great, it's a great line. Yeah. So great. Yeah. 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 Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Uh, ben, uh, before we ask our guest this, uh, and I'm particularly inter- interested to know, we ask everyone uh, two questions. First, what is your favorite movie? Do you have so, one? Can you even do that? I, I mean, yeah, I mean, like I'd have to. Cons- There's three movies that come into my head right away. For it could change by the day. For four movies, um, I can't, I can't construct a list of the top anything without including Casablanca. Okay. I've seen it more than I've seen it more than any other movie. It makes me cry every time. Sometimes at different spots. Um, then, uh, uh, obviously, I have to include a Jennifer Lopez film. Um, uh, uh, out of sight. Is a movie uh, that, that gets me okay. every time. So, Soderbergh. Yeah. Uh, you know, with Clooney. And that was my introduction to Don Cheadle. And I was like, ah, who's this guy? What is happening here? Like, you know, and Clooney is, come on. I don't, you know, whatever. I don't, he's charming. He's good. Yeah. Right. You know, he's a movie star. Uh, yeah. And he's Jennifer our, Lopez. He's our homeboy. Our and Jennifer Lopez proved then, right. He's a movie star. And Jennifer Lopez proved that, you know, if she, if she did this all the time, she was great in that. And Ving Rames and Steve Zahn is so funny in it. Albert Brooks, Nancy Allen. This is great. And Soderbergh, I was his brain. You know, and uh, um, so I love that movie. I just, I saw the movie in Miami when I was working there and I came out of the theater and I thought, well, if this is how I felt at the end of every movie, all I would do, I would go to a movie every night. Like I couldn't, it was a feeling wow. that I would, I would chase forever. Um, and then a couple of movies from 1957, which I think is Hollywood's best year. Uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick's uh, 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 war picture, World War One picture, Paths of Glory, with Kirk Douglas, who produced it too, which is, I think, the best war movie ever made, which will break your heart. It's a great movie. Wow. And it's, it's, it feels like you've watched a four hour epic. It's 90 minutes. 
Like it's really? just, it just I've gotta watch it. I've you got to watch it. Just watch it. It'll, never seen it. It's a gut punch straight through, straight through. It's an amazing, amazing movie. And then Sweet Smell of Success, Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis, also 1957. Uh, you know, I, I love media movies. I, I could, and then I, you know, because I just thought of media. So all the president's men. <laughs> and one flew over the cuckoo's nest and then i just that but now i'm gonna i could now I go on now you go on and, and on yeah yeah go on and on yeah yeah cuckoo's nest is my my favorite it's yeah well, my it's, favorite it's, it's my favorite piece of art yeah right that's a totally legit yeah. thing to say um uh yeah who i just was talking to somebody on twitter one of the people who follows us all on uh twitter who who was that who uh who loves Cuckoo's Nest too? Anyway, many people, but it's it's incredibly moving. Cuckoo's Nest, but seven, yeah. 1967 to nineteen seventy six, those ten years in, in American movies is the greatest ten year run ever. Wow. You know, yeah. I mean, there were great stuff after that. It's just seventy seven. Star Wars comes and that changes the. It just feels like a different era starts in seventy seven. Yeah. You did? Have you seen anything uh, lately that that you liked? I went to the Telluride Film Festival, uh, which TCM uh, sponsors. So we we go every year, which is a great unbelievable perks you know, like them you can't believe that's in america not that i don't think america is beautiful i do but it's just like I, that's here it's right here yeah like you know right and for all the talk about you know all these other beautiful places i'm like the best they can do is tie this you know yeah, it's like can. Yeah. um so i saw you know i didn't i saw stuff that was good but nothing nothing really I mean, I, you know, the best thing I saw recently was uh, Confess Fletch. Um, we, <laughs> I haven't watched it. I saw it and people were saying I, don't, I, I really liked it. I don't want to like get any like you should not go in thinking, oh, great. Uh, you know, Ben Mago said it's going to be great. It's going to be hilarious. Like just, you know, balance yourself out. Like if you love the original, <laughs> as I do and can quote yeah. Chevy Chase, by the way, coming on the TCM cruise, November 12th through 17th. Fantastic. I think. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so I'm going to talk to Jevy. And so I thought that was like, I got to see that, but I loved it, man. I thought John Hamm was delightful and it was fun and funny and stupid and and all the right ways. I thought it was great. I think people should see it, but I just don't want to, I don't want them expecting too much, but that's only because I want you to enjoy it. Good. And then the second question we always ask is front row center for any musical band or comedian or speaker or or uh, athlete front row center dead or alive who do you go see i mean i get to live this i mean i've seen bruce Springsteen 40 times and i'd still take bruce i don't i, I can't wait till he's back on tour i it just every time it reaches me it's there's nothing better than seeing and with the nothing better than seeing bruce and the e street band together do you me. do nothing. you like it you said you referenced it a couple times that I dislike crying. I just do. Um, but I, there are songs that I listen to that I know are going to make me cry. There are movies that, are, what is that? And, you know, you said you, Bruce, you've seen him 40. What is that? That, you know, it, it just moves you. What is it? I think that you have to think about being moved, that, that it is the, it's not the crying. The crying is the result of being moved. Right. So it is the, it is the willingness to accept whatever that powerful emotion that builds up in you. And, and I just feel instantly connected. It's like this, it's all, it's like taking a drug that reminds you of, of the things that are important to you. Like mm. I do that and I'm going to think about my father and I'm going to think about how lucky I am to have my brother and how lucky I am to have my wife and how 
my kid is the best kid on the planet, which of course she is. Um, and I, and the, my dogs were great. And the dead dogs are great. The dogs that are still alive. It's just, you know, and you just feel fortunate or if things are bad, I imagine I would think like, okay, these are the things I got to figure. I got to get past these things that are plaguing me. And so, you know, it's just a, I mean, I suppose also sometimes it could be sad. It can be sad. There are definitely songs that make, but I don't think of the crying as being sad. I think of it as just being hit with emotion. And I think for me anyway, you know, you can bury so much of it and you go about your day. Uh, uh, you know, uh, he's got a song, Blood Brothers, you know, and that, you know, you know, you can get bogged down thinking like, yeah. what are we doing today? What are the bills we got to pay today? Right. But the music makes you remember what's important and then you forget it. And obviously, you know, you need it. You need the dose again and again, you got to go back mm-hmm. to it. So the, which is for me, why it would be really hard to give up music because it does, it does focus me on things that I think are important. Even if it only, even if that focus only lasts for the three minutes and 25 seconds of the song, but that is a thing that music can do. And that these yeah. artists can do is, is make you feel for three minutes, really feel, and I think that's pretty special. Yeah. Very well said. Thank you, Ben. Ben, uh, where can our listeners find the plot thickens coming up? Uh, anywhere you get podcasts, Apple podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts, it'll be there October 25th, maybe midnight on the 24th. I'm not sure how that works, but uh, season four, Pam Greer, here comes Pam. Um, and it's great. Uh, um, we're proud of it. And I think you'll like it too. And uh and then, you know, you can follow me, you know, we're following me on Twitter, you know, I'm basically retweeting Rex, but I show my wife videos and she's like, where do you get all this stuff? And I'm like, Rex, like I saw, it's just like, now she knows. Like, Rex, like, right. But if I so didn't silly. get it from Rex, I'm baffled. I don't know where I got it. Yeah. <laughs> so crazy, Ben. Thank you so much. Come back and do this again, please. Anytime. Ask away. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Buddy. Thank you. <laughs> Between two turns. Between two turns. Another episode in the books. Yep. A smart guy <laughs> surrounded by dummies. By two turns. Yeah. Just, uh, I can't believe we continue to get people that come on the show that are so smart and funny and interesting and worldly. I mean, I could have listened to him tell stories about Hollywood all day or politics or. I, I could listen to him read the phone book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's great voice, great right? style, great attitude. <laughs> great if you're if you're watching the pod, he's got great hair. Great hair. Oh, he's yeah. Got a real nice salad on him. He just looks great. <laughs> and, and, and he uh, he he's one of those guys. He says things, and I have to lie. For no reason, like you know, like you know, the director Sim Flipflop. I'm like, sure, sure, yeah, fantastic, uh huh. And he just, and I'm just trying to keep up. I'm like, mm-hmm, I know everything you're talking about. Please yeah, don't yeah, ask me. You, yeah, you're, yeah, like I'm too smart to even interject too much. Uh, anyway, um, well, but it was great, um, and a and a bit of a, a a turn for us, and I enjoyed it. Yep, me too. Immensely. Immensely. All right, bud, let's do it again next week. One, two. Sounds great to me. Same time, same place for the Rex Chapman Show with my super dope homeboy from the Lex Town, Josh Hopkins, powered by basketballnews.com. <laughs>